Hi everyone, this is Divya Gupta for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I'm accompanied by Michael Cox, and we talk to our two very special guests, Dr. Thomas Coons and Dr. Pranita Mudliar. Tom is a professor in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Tom is an environmental social scientist, and his work mostly focuses on collaborative environmental governance. Pranita is an assistant professor in the Department of Environmental Studies and Sciences at the Ithaca College. Her scholarship involves examining micro and macro level power dynamics, socio-cultural inequalities, and multi-actor interactions in the context of natural resource governance. We look forward to interacting with our guests today, and we hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, Tom. Hi, Pranita. Thanks so much for being on the show. It is so good to have you here. For listeners to know, I've known both Tom and Pranita for a long time. Tom was my PhD advisor, and Pranita was my PhD cohort at Ohio State University. So this is literally like a virtual reunion. The last time we met was in 2019 at the ISC conference in Peru. 2019 to 2021. So much has changed. So how are you both doing? How have you been? Yeah, like you said, 2019, 2021, that's worlds apart. Um, I'm doing okay. I feel very fortunate that I'm in a place where we have the vaccine and people are getting it. And that especially I have a job that I can actually do at home. I'm not a frontline worker. So as much as I complain about the not being in person with students, I'm ever so grateful that I get to keep my job and keep connecting with the students. So hanging in there and looking forward to better times around the corner. Pranita, how have you been? So first of all, thank you for having us on the podcast. Um, how have I been? So I'm, I'm functional, uh, which is surprising because it's been a very traumatic year. Uh, I've been in two lockdowns, one in the US and one in India. I've dealt with not being able to be physically with my family, at also a time at a personal loss. And I was not able to travel to India at that point of time because there was a lockdown. And now that I'm here in the U, uh, in India, I can't go back to the US. So it's it's been a wild ride, even though I've been physically stuck in places. And so in that context, I found work to be very comforting, uh, which is very surprising because we keep hearing about these stories of increased workloads, especially for women who have childcare responsibilities. But uh, what doesn't get written about, I think, for people who don't who don't have the luxury of having your family close by, or maybe who don't have family. So how do you deal with the grief and the trauma that comes with that? Because you're, you, there's a sense of loss with not having something close to you. So with all of that going on and a lot of my own scattered thoughts because of my own personal loss, I think work has been like a coping mechanism, which has, uh, uh, it's, it's been very good to have that because then you can channel all your scattered thoughts and, you know, make something out of it. And it's mostly been meditative, I think, because there's this daily sense of rhythm. You sort of know what needs to be done. Uh, and I've been doing it more for my own sense of peace than anything else. I'm so sorry for your personal loss, Pranita. And I can to an extent relate to that because, I mean, the year has, and I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it because there was a time when, you know, I was terrified of receiving phone calls because it was just like so bad. Um, but uh, I'm really sorry to, to hear about the loss. But it's interesting how you talk about like, you know, the work being the coping mechanism. So um, I'm glad that you were finally able to be with the family and, uh, you know, spend some quality time with the family. I mean, for me as well, like, you know, personally, that has helped the most, like, you know, being close to the family has helped me the most. So, and as Tom said, you know, we, we can hope for the better times to come. For sure. So um, before we, uh, you know, dive into some of the deeper questions, um, you know, this is something that we ask our, our guests all the time that, you know, that their, their origin story, like, you know, how did they end up being where they are right now? And uh, how did they end up, uh, you know, doing the research that they're, they're working on right now? So, um, can you share that story with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was thinking about this. Uh, I grew up in a fairly rural county in the Puget Sound region uh, of my home state of Washington. It's in the northwest corner of the United States. And we played outside all the time. We made tree forts, went climbing, running around with our neighbors. Just we were outside all the time. Uh, sometimes in the summer, my mom 
dad wouldn't see us for the whole day. They should call us in for dinner time when it was getting dark. So we were just outside all the time, uh, did some camping and fishing now and again with my family. And all the while we were surrounded by these beautiful forests and mountains and the sea was right there. But this was my context, so I never really noticed it. Um, I was just doing my thing and I wasn't even drawn towards environmental studies. In undergrad, I was actually a business major. I just wanted to do a job that would make me lots of money is what my mom said, I said. So, so I was doing my business major and toward the end, I took a course with a professor of religion who was teaching an ethics class and he also did a bit of sideline job in socially responsible investing. So he would help this small firm with uh, clients who had a lot of money like from an inheritance and they wanted to invest in things that were good companies, not you know military industrial complexes or things. So I helped him a little bit uh, doing research on uh, the, the companies that he was considering for his clients to invest. And that got me interested in the environmental portion of it. And I came to see that just hoping that businesses would do the right thing was probably not enough. I wanted to do environmental policy. So that's where I went uh, on to graduate work um, at uh, Indiana University, which was clear across the country. And in fact, it was there that I realized that, that I had a really great hometown and that, that I missed the mountains and forests and uh, I missed the, the ocean. So there I sort of developed this strong place attachment to my home ecosystem. So it's kind of reverse. It wasn't I always grew up knowing I loved the place, but it was really like being away from it drove me to want to, you know, get more into environmental things. So that's kind of how I got to doing environmental as my topic. It's, that's great, Tom, because, you know, I can relate to that so much. I grew up in the foothills of the Himalaya and I always took it for granted. It was only when I moved out of my hometown that I realized that I was living in such a beautiful place. Preetha, do you want to share your story? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Pune, where I am right now. It's my most favorite city in the world. And my childhood was spent doing a lot of reading because we didn't have people around us to play with our friends. But we did have the outdoors. We had a beautiful backyard with the people tree and the Gulmohar tree. And those remain my favorite even today. And, you know, seeing the gorgeous Bougainvillea bloom in the beautiful Indian summer. And there were snakes and mongoose and, you know, a lot of birds would come visit us. So that was the idyllic part. The other side of it was that uh, I grew up with a lot of daily scarcities of not having water and not having electricity at home. Uh, I remember days of pitch dark blackness, uh, studying in flickering candlelight. And my parents used to joke that, oh, you know, at least you don't have to study under the lamppost like other kids who don't have those luxuries. So it, it, very early on, I think I understood the relativeness of the privilege that comes with access to resources and also knowing that even though you have little, there's always going to be someone who has less than you. And I remember when I was in first grade, uh, our school sent us home with these labels. We used to cover our textbooks, right? So there were labels and there was uh, the slogan on that label was, I'm a child of the 20th century. I need to protect the trees. And for the life of me, I did not understand why do I need to protect the trees? Like, what's wrong with the trees? The trees in my backyard seem to be really nice. Uh, but I was also a voracious reader of newspapers. And like, if you're in India, newspapers are always going to be filled up with, you know, some sort of protest that's going on. There's some sort of strike that's going on. There's some sort of power cut or a water cut, or there's some rehabilitation land grab, you know, or land displacement or some sort of atrocity that's going on. So that has been the stuff that I grew up reading. And but school wasn't talking about those things. So I was very confused, like, you know, why are we talking about physics when, you know, all I want to do is, you know, learn about why these, you know, land struggles going on. Uh, and I was pretty good in studies. So like, you know, all good Indian students, uh, I, without thinking, ended up doing uh, biotechnology in my undergrad. Uh, but then by my third year, which is also the final year of uh, undergraduate studies in India, I could no longer ignore what my gut was telling me that, you know, your calling lies somewhere else. So I enrolled for my master's in environmental science and I didn't learn anything there, uh, but we did have this opportunity to do fieldwork and I was doing my master's thesis at that point of time in rural Karnataka. And that was the first time I saw 
how caste plays a role in accessing resources, uh, the daily indignities that people have to suffer, not just for resource access, but just for the day-to-day -day existence. And uh, without knowing anything about anything, I ended up applying to grad school uh, for my PhD with Tom. And that was my first brush with social science. Actually, when I entered graduate school, because I hadn't read any research papers until then, I didn't know how to write. I could not make sense of any of the you know, the way, just the style of scientific writing. Uh, but that was the first time I actually then started learning about concepts that I was observing, uh, just, you know, reading Governing the Commons. And those are the things that I wrote about in my SOP. Those are the things that I worked on during my grad school, like these concepts of equity and accountability and capabilities. And even today, I'm fortunate enough to get to continue doing those things. Wonderful, Preeta. I mean, I can relate to your experience of, you know, uh, being from a natural science background and then sort of like, you know, shifting gears and PhD with Tom, especially because, uh, uh, you know, coincidentally, uh, it was the same for me that uh, it was only when I started working on uh, my PhD that I was able to draw insights from the different disciplines like, you know, um, political uh, science and public policy and uh, political ecology and things like that. So I can totally relate to that. You know, as, as a student from India, you know, as somebody from India coming to the United States and like, you know, just like struggling with figuring out the way academia in the United States work. I mean, um, I it, that resonates with me as well. Like, you know, just like, and, 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 I, and I felt that it was not only about learning, it was also about unlearning, you know, some of the ways that we grew up learning in our own academic system back in India. I think when I came to the U.S., as you said, that, you know, it, we had to train our minds to, to learn, uh, to read the research articles and also to learn to write and articulate all these like complex uh, processes that, you know, we were really interested in exploring so, I mean, uh, so I'm really interested because now uh, I'm, I'm familiar, I'm aware of the journey that, you know, your life has, your academic life uh, uh, particularly has taken. And, and, and I'm aware that, you know, how the, the dilemma, all the dilemmas that were there at the outset of the doctoral program, and now where you were like, you know, writing about all those complex realities and bringing out such nuances in the complex realities of, you know, the governance process. Um, can you reflect a little bit on how that journey was for you and um, how did you overcome you know, those, those, those challenges? Oh, wow. I, I keep thinking about this a lot because sometimes I cannot stop marveling you know, where I am. And uh, right now my sister and I together and we were seeing our old childhood photos and we were like, gosh, you know, we were there, but look where we are right now. So it's been quite a trajectory for us. But what I, you know, sometimes it's, I think about that, I'm just now, I think, starting to understand the language of the papers that I read. And I'm also teaching this to my undergrads. And I cannot help thinking that, wow, you know, these kids are so fortunate that they're getting to study things that only now that I am able to articulate and understand. So I think, and, you know, I'm in that position where I'm able to impart, you know, take apart that knowledge and give that to undergraduate students. So I think I find that very fulfilling. But I think the way I navigated it is by just you know immersing myself in reading I do love reading and when I used to read papers I think initially it used to be hard because I used to be really excited and that excitement used to terrify me because I used to feel that oh I'm you know going to miss out something really powerful and I need to hold on to a certain line because I need to keep repeating that line over and over again until it makes sense but especially I think in the early years, things didn't make sense to me at all. And I can see that in the early years of my writing too. It's, you know, all over the place and my thoughts are not complete. But now I think when I'm able to read more, I'm able to write better. So that has been very helpful for me. And I think this is advice that, you know, all writers usually will tell us that the only way to write better is to read. So it's, it's taken quite a while to, you know, calm myself down and not be so overwhelmed with the papers that I'm reading, because then I've started to not just get excited by it, but really enjoy, you know, the writing that is there and the thoughts and the ideas that are there in the paper. So 
that has taken quite a little bit of self-discipline, but also having fantastic mentors around me who have very patiently kept giving me feedback with of my writing, which to be honest, started off from a very, very bad place, but now I can see, you know, it's it's evolving. And for me, it's always been about writing it in as simple terms and language as possible. Uh, so as, because I don't want to write in, you know, the ivory tower kind of a scholarship. I want to make it more public, uh, public facing scholarship. So I like that I'm able to do that now, which is very hard, you know, to write it in a simple format, to write it in simple language. Renita, in your uh, in your um, defense, you actually started out, as I recall, pretty uh, well versed in writing, even though it wasn't in your topic. So I was thinking back, Divya, to your comments too about both of you coming from a natural science background, and and I didn't, I did not come from a natural science background. So for me, the natural science is what's the foreign language. Um, but both of your story, you were mentioning that you grew up and environmental things meant natural science things. And I think that's so interesting because um, when I was looking through your, your files and all the applications that I would get to see who I would advise that year, um, that was a pretty common thing. Uh, the strong students tended to be the ones who had a natural science background. And then I sometimes wonder, are we doing a disservice to our um, undergraduate and high school level by teaching them that environment equals natural science? I think, of course, it's important, but I always think of the um, chart from the IPCC report a few years ago. They have something called figure one, which has human system in a box and then another box is natural world. And there's arrows going between the boxes. And I think everyone always looks at the box that says natural science, because that's the bugs and the rivers and the outside and the mud. But people aren't really noticing the social science part of it. And maybe that's just a progression. Maybe it makes sense that we feed the minds with natural science first and later social science, but I sometimes wonder if, if it needs to be that way. And I'm glad both of you uh, were able to start from there, but then use, use that as a base and then branch out to the social sciences. But I wonder what it would like if some students started off with social sciences and then we brought the natural sciences in. I wonder if that model doesn't work as well, or if that's just the bias in our educational systems, not just the US, but it seems like in India as well. That's a good point. I've never thought about this before, but um, based on my own experience, I can tell you that having the flexibility to study both social and natural sciences together was something I wish I had in my undergrad, because by the time I was in graduate school and started my PhD program, wherein I was engaged in conducting interdisciplinary research, I felt that I was lagging behind and had a lot of catching up to do, especially in terms of being well-versed in social uh, science theories and frameworks. But reflecting on the challenges that the international students face, you know, just like what Pranita and I were discussing earlier, and also the importance of mentorship. I mean, Tom, it's been so many years since I graduated, but I still fall back on you for mentorship and advice. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how it has been for you to work with and also mentor international students. Yeah, it's been really fantastic. I didn't go looking for students from outside the US. Uh, it sort of happened, uh, came to me and it happened to be a nice chain of students from India. Uh, a couple of things that, uh, not to generalize about Indian students, but the folks who apply to places in the US, I would sort of describe to colleagues, um, there's some advantages there. One is that uh, English, you, I, I would say that folks coming to me from India uh, have gone through educational system and have a really good command of English. So there's one less barrier, right, to having to learn a new language. Certainly the nuances are different a little bit, but really um, both of you came in as really strong communicators and I knew that wouldn't be an additional barrier. Um, the other thing I noticed is the students that I've had the pleasure of working with from India all seem to really um, put a lot of stock into education. You can tell that it's been ingrained from a young age that education is important. And I've always noticed that students that I've worked with from India uh, don't take it for granted, really are appreciative of opportunities and really like revere the opportunity to do that. So that's really makes it really easy as somebody trying to be a mentor that you have students who are gonna be prepared to work with you and also uh, make that a really high priority. So it just sort of happened. I had a chain of, I think, four students who are Indian students. And um, I've had other students who are non-Indian as well, but um, those things kind of made it easier for me and really a joy to work with, 
with both of you, I didn't really real, realize the magnitude of, oh, you've never been in the US before. And later on, I realized that this must have been just, I can't imagine myself stepping off a plane to a place that I had not been before and say, well, I've got four years or so here, this better work because of my family, everything's riding on this. Like that enormity of that decision didn't really hit me. I was just myself working on trying to be a good mentor and, you know, doing what I did with scholarship and, and advising. But now that I look back, I think that was quite an enormous leap that you must have taken to say, yep, I'm going to cast my lot here with this person and this program and hope that it all works out. I, I remember this time once, uh, I think you were just saying it as a joke, but you went like, oh, all of these Indian students, how do they end up working so hard? And I just, I remember that all the time, but that was what you thought about us. And it's true, you guys were very hardworking and that a lot of PhD, you know, be honest, a lot of PhD is a slog of really working hard. You got to be interested enough, but you know, you got to kick it into higher gear, especially for the US students. The undergrad can be very rigorous, but it's a different level to be in the PhD. And I don't know how, how rigorous your training was, but I have a feeling that it was in certain ways pretty hard, but you came to the US and PhD, you kind of get thrown in. You have classes, of course, to guide you. And I can remember being lost in literature for a lot of my PhD is like, they're telling me these papers are important, but I don't really get it. But okay, the abstract, maybe there's a piece in here. I can sit in seminar and listen to other smart people pull out those nuggets and I'll take lots and lots of notes. And then it's just a matter of repetition, repetition, repetition. You start seeing ideas. Oh yeah, I think we talked about, and then you kind of form that. You've got this clay in front of you and you're forming it. And the beginning is not gonna be pretty and you're gonna find stuff you don't need and then you do need it. And so I think it's, it's all pretty chaotic and random in a way. I think a lot about which order I read things. And if I had read paper one in a different order, my whole mindset would be very different. So those initial papers you get kind of set the baseline and then you pile onto that and you could shift your baseline eventually, but I think just whatever order you get things in is important. I spent a lot of time when I was teaching graduate students thinking hard about what order should you be receiving this information because all of it's going to be like a foreign language but what's going to be accessible to kind of set the baseline and a lot of reading like you said pranita and willing to sort of spend a lot of hours where you're doing the hard work hopefully because you're also enjoying it at least to a little bit of a degree thanks so much for sharing that tom um, so i'll shift gears here a little bit and would love to hear more about the recent case studies that both of you have been working on. Tom, uh, your case study on Puget Sound and Pranita's case study on Lake Victoria are really interesting and fascinating. And I'd really like to know uh, how both your case studies use the lens of polycentricity to unpack some of the complex issues related to governance of socio-ecological systems. Can you tell us a little bit about your research on these case studies? So yeah, I can talk about the case study. So I'll talk a little bit about fieldwork because uh, it's exciting and thrilling to be doing fieldwork. And now that I think about it, actually, whatever part of research that I'm doing becomes a favorite part at that point in time. And fieldwork is no different, right? Uh, and I think this is also where I, when I was younger, I wanted to become a journalist. So I think doing fieldwork brings my journalistic fantasies um, come into play, the thrill of seeking a story and triangulating a data and all of that. So doing fieldwork in uh, East Africa and Uganda, Tanzania and Kenya was really fascinating. It was fantastic. And I felt that I could barely scratch the surface while I was there. Uh, but I'll back up a little bit about how all of that came about. So uh, if you remember the way we were taking an independent study course with Tom, right? And that's where we first learned about polycentricity. And I remember coming out of that session with my head buzzing. I was like, wait, how do these overlaps emerge? You know, why is it spontaneous overlaps? Why can't they be intentionally overlapping? Uh, how are these different, how do these decision centers know that, you know, they're supposed to coordinate? Like it seemed like magic. And I kept thinking that how does this all end up happening? And then, so this was, I think, in 2012 or something. Uh, and then polycentricity went out of my head, right? Because I was doing my uh, PhD in a different topic altogether. Uh, but then in 2017, I think, at uh, the IAC conference in Utrecht in Netherlands, it seemed like 
it's starting again because uh, there were several panels uh, with people presenting on polycentricity. This was also a time, I think, when Rebecca Gruby's work came out about the structure and functionality of polycentric systems and operationalizing that. And then things just started clicking because I had just started my postdoc at that point in time, and that was on Lake Victoria's fisheries. And I felt like, you know, there's a colliding and a coming together of, you know, the stars, and it all made sense at that point of time. But as I was listening to all the presentations at IAC Nutrate, it occurred to me that I was yet to find a case study on polycentricity from, you know, a post-colonial society or an economy in transition. So I spent that year, uh, 2017, learning and reading as much as I could with very sparse literature on polycentricity, but I spent that time also learning about these three countries that I was eventually going to visit, and I found that all of the studies on co-management of fisheries in these in, uh, places, in these three countries, was only with done with fishers, but co-management is when governments are also involved and no one had really studied governments at that point in time, especially for these three countries and co-management has been around in these three countries since the early 1990s. So uh, that struck me as, you know, quite curious and it seemed like polycentricity was giving me that lens to study these decision centers who are stacked across different levels, right from the national level and the state, regional and right at the landing site, as well as from different jurisdictions because it wasn't just the Department of Fisheries that is involved. There's, you know, water and there's the police force and there's the Coast Guard and there's the military and there's the army. And like, you know, who would have ever thought that the army is involved in the management of fisheries? So uh, by the time that I got to do fieldwork, I felt pretty confident with the language of polycentricity because of uh, the paper that had come out of Rebecca Gruby's work. So, and I had a fair understanding of uh, the three countries by then, and this just came from reading. So then I started speaking with people, uh, mostly my mentors, and everyone kept telling me that, oh, you need to be careful if you're going to these three countries and, and that I need to learn to be patient. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, the things that they were telling me to be careful about and the need to be patient was something that I've already experienced in India, because you have to be patient if you're going to be interviewing government officers in India, right? You, they're going to keep you waiting. Uh, and then they kept telling me, this is especially for Nairobi, that be careful of Nairobi because it's not Nairobi, but it's Nairobbery. Uh, because that seemed to be a lot of uh, uh, events, uh, thieves that uh, are in Nairobi. And uh, I'm, I'm a pretty confident traveler when I'm by myself. And as a single woman, like I know how to take care of myself. But and Nairobi, the way people spoke about it really frightened me. And then when I was finally in Nairobi, I started speaking with local people about it and they got really offended. And they were like, look, these are again, you know, one of those stereotypes that white tourists have made about us. Like you're in a crowded street and that crowded street is similar to any crowded market in India. And I love crowded markets in India because they're so fascinating, right? There's so much of stuff happening. There's you, someone is fighting or, you know, the cows and dogs and cats and everything on the road. So there's so much of stuff happening. And I like all of that. So I don't think I was scared at any point in time over there. For doing fieldwork too, the language was not a problem because the government functions in English in these places. Uh, my identity as uh, an Indian was, uh, I don't know if it was an advantage, but uh, people over there are already familiar with Indians, right? Because India is a huge business community in all three countries. Uh, my identity as a brown researcher from the US, I think that was more advantageous because that did help open certain doors for me because everyone was fascinated by how does, you know, how did this brown person come from the US? Uh, other challenges I think were uh, the dress code in Tanzania especially was problematic because uh, it's very formal. You have to wear skirts and dresses, and that's not good to wear during field work. And uh, people will call you out if you're not dressed in that way. Uh, with regard to pace of life and the pace of government offices, officials are buried under mountains of paperwork, uh, but people would put aside the time to chat with me. And then without even me, you know, asking a specific question about overlaps or linkages, that is what they would talk about, because that was what was happening there. There were these overlaps, there were these spontaneous overlaps, and no one was happy about those spontaneous overlaps. People had no idea how to interact and coordinate with each other, because those roles and responsibilities were not clarified. So I think those are the things that then I could be able to write about from my fieldwork, because it seemed like the 
polycentric scholarship was saying that you know overlaps are good and spontaneity is good but here i was finding out the complete opposite of what was actually being written about so i think overall just having that time to study for a long time immerse myself in the concepts and uh, then being you know able to do the field work and having people who wanted to talk about these things because they were frustrated about it right and people like to share stories so uh, i think all of that came together at the right time and that allowed me to finish my field work with very very few hiccups wow that's amazing you know the the part that uh, struck me was how your interviewees were already responding you in the language of polycentricity and i can't imagine like you know how helpful that might have been for you because i mean i feel like um, you know polycentricity in itself is a really uh, i mean it, it's a difficult concept to work with uh, especially if you're starting out um, so uh, operationalizing the concept in the field could be even more challenging so uh, and i can imagine that you know how the fact that your um, your interviewees were already talking the language of you know overlaps and uh, uh, you know uh, the, the different aspects of polycentricity i can imagine like how helpful that would have been tom do you want to go next yeah sure i can talk a little bit about the cases i'm working on um i had spent many years in ohio uh looking at collaborative governance collaboration it was called lots of different things but i usually called it collaboration and uh, i'd sort of run up against sort of the most um information that i figured i could squeeze from those cases. Um, and I started wanting to see how it played out in other contexts, because context is very important for lots of things. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to get a sabbatical and spend some time in Germany, which was very um, eye opening in just a totally new context, which of the which of the um, concepts that I had been working with would apply as well. And so I find that to be very interesting to spend uh, some time digging into that context with water collaboration. And so when I found the opportunity to move back to my home region, um, I started looking around to see what were the big uh, ecosystem pieces that people were focusing on. And uh, straight away, it was very clear that it was the Puget Sound water body. So um, again, I took some concepts and ideas that I knew from other places and started to work seeing how they would be applicable there. Um, and it was, the learning curve just shot up for me the first couple of years I was here, kind of like Pranita, you're describing learning about the place and then, oh yeah, about the theories too, but learning about the place. And um, I, when I when I'm find myself encountering a new place, I like to see where all the action is. What is it about this place that might make it different than other places I know about? And that gives me some analytical leverage to see how certain dimensions of a context might be really important. So it turned out that the place that I'm in now, the Puget Sound, what's sort of special and different about this place, um, other than it being a really large scale ecosystem, it's not just a small basin, it's a pretty large scale place, um, is that there's lots and lots of research, lots of management, lots of science, lots of, of really smart people and tons of money being used to try to figure out how to deal with the problems of this case. Uh, and one of the interesting challenges uh, is the salmon. The salmon have been traditionally part of indigenous people's culture for 10,000 years or so, um, and also listed on the Endangered Species Act. So there's a lot going on with several runs of salmon. In addition, uh, we have uh, orcas, which are iconic for this region and garner lots of public affection and attention. And orcas require salmon to live. They also require clean water. Um, in addition, uh, in this part of the world, there's been a mass influx of people, a lot of high tech jobs coming for the amenity values of the system. So we've got a lot of interest, a lot of pressures on the system. And the fact that I grew up here and I remember when certain places were just all forests and now they're all subdivisions, um, a really rich stew of, of organizations and interactions going on. I had also been interested in the link between science and policy, because uh, when I, in my own um, academic journey, uh, went into Ohio State, where I had my first faculty job, I was a social scientist surrounded by natural scientists. And I would often get remarks from the natural scientists saying, well, we did this study about the soil type. And because now we know the impact of this um, nutrient, we've fixed the problem, uh, we're done. And I would say, wait, you fixed half the problem 
you now know what's causing this soil to be polluted, how in the world are you going to get people to change their behavior? And I would just get blank stares like, oh, well, just have the government regulate them or just pay them and they'll do it because we had a lot of economics folks there as well. So um, I was really starting to chafe against this idea that the natural scientists had all the answers and I wanted to keep bringing back the other half of the system, which was the people. Um, so I've got an interest in the science policy interface and uh, there's a lot of great work out here going on with organizations trying hard to support science and also some of them are trying to bring that to the practitioner. So um, this was a, a context where those were some really great questions to ask. So that's kind of how I settled on the subset of polycentricity or subset of collaboration called how science is used in collaboration based on the context I was in. And that um, as, as scholarship often goes, that led me to additional literature that had been there all along, but I hadn't delved into it before. I mean, I think this is the cycle of you read the literature, you get some ideas, you go test them out, you get confronted with a new context that suggests new things and you go and you realize that people have been doing this in parallel with you, some of the folks you've never heard of before and there they are working in the same struggle you are. Um, and now you're gonna try to add your brick into this big edifice of knowledge we're building but with journals, the work they've done in the past lives forever in the journals, right? So I could plumb some older journal articles and then find some more current ones as well. So um, it's been a, a way to really keep my curiosity going. Um, you can only flail so long at a particular concept. You can do what Lynn Ostrom did, which is just fall in love with it and just, just work it forever. Or you can do what I do, which is sort of flit about from one shiny object to the next. They all tend to be related, but, oh, this is a new thing. I get excited. I get to read more about this. And then I say, wait, my, my comparative advantage is back here because I've already built up a lot of knowledge, but still I want to try this new thing. And it's great when sometimes they end up connecting back up. And that's, that's how polycentricity went for me. Uh, I, I left it aside for a very long time, but now I'm coming back around and saying, oh, I guess I have been doing it just with a different package instead of concepts. So I think part of um, my interest is in sort of finding new and interesting stuff to hold my interest and curiosity and somehow tying it back to things that I've already been spending years kind of learning about. So I'm not always reinventing the wheel. Divya, can I jump in there? Yes, please go for it. Well, I would just love to hear more from each of you about how you felt I mean, is this is something I talk to, talk to my students a lot about is you need to make the words you use work for you as opposed to working for the words. So don't just drop in a word because you think it's what I want to hear, but make sure it's actually like doing analytical work for you. It's helping you explain things. And so I'm interested in both of your experiences in how much work polycentricity ultimately did for you in these case studies. Like how different would your case study look if you didn't have that word in it? Could you have done what you did without it? And Pranita, I was, I was interested in, and so there's two concepts that I saw in each of your cases that, I'm, that, that are related to how you conceptualize polycentricity. Pranita, for you, I was interested in power. And I saw that you were building off, I think it was work from Tiffany Morrison, who we've interviewed about looking at these different types of power. So I'd love to hear uh, more from you about that and how that worked for you. And, and Tom, what I something that jumped out at me about your work was the role of these knowledge brokers and the role that they played in this polycentric system. Because it's something I've thought a lot about and it's come up with a lot of interviews on this podcast is the role of kind of boundary actors. Particularly when we're thinking about co-management, we're thinking about collaborative management. You really can't get away from this certain type of actor that's able to bridge these boundaries and, and, and horizontally, I guess I would say, in the language that you really use in your study, Tom. Um, so Pranita, could we start with you? And could you talk a bit about, and I think it'd be great for listeners to hear about this typology of power that you used and how that typology plus polycentricity, how well you thought it worked for you in explaining what you saw in the case study. Mm -hmm. So uh, the lens of polycentricity, for me at least, it gave me these opportunities as an analyst to examine interactions across multiple levels and jurisdictions, you know, all the coordinations, what sort of resources are needed, opportunities for deliberation and learning uh, and all of that. And I like that this lens of polycentricity, polycentricity allows for an expansion of boundaries 
an accounting of processes that we would otherwise characterize as external to the context. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So during my fieldwork for my dissertation, I was looking at this really micro level power dynamics in a community based watershed group, both in the US as well as in India. And uh, at that point of time, my focus was on racial and caste inequalities among uh, in, in the group. And I was using the lens of uh, Austrian science principles. But the more I explored these racial and caste inequalities, I was realizing that the micro level lens that I was adopting was blaming the people for acting in oppressive ways when they themselves are being oppressed by the system. And what I mean by that is that the people who are oppressing others were being oppressed by another agency or by the government or external agencies. And with my community level, micro level lens, I could not really expand my analytical focus to examine those interactions to the extent that I would have liked to. Uh, and I was really interested in those power dynamics between the groups and the government bodies. And I was eager to go beyond just the community level just beyond those micro level dynamics and broaden my focus on uh, the systemic elements at the meso and the macro level, which the polycentricity scholarship, I think, does a good job in incorporating. And so I think by the time I finished my dissertation, uh, I and polycentricity was always at the back of my head. And like as Tom said, you know, you flip to the next shiny object. And I think even I do that all the time. And I got this opportunity with uh, to study the fisheries in Lake Victoria. And that's when I came across Tiffany Morrison's paper. And that's when, again, things just, you know, clicked. And it seemed like very serendipitous because she was talking about uh, the framing of the rules. She was talking about rules in design uh, and the structural components. And those things seem to work really well with the polycentric uh, structure and function that uh, the theoretical framework that I was using from Rebecca Gruby's work. So putting those two together, I could then understand what are these power dynamics between the community members as one group and government agencies on the other hand. And then I could see that way the government agency is not one monolithic entity, but it's split off between the higher level governments and then there are lower level governments. And even among the lower level governments, there seem to be different kinds of power dynamics because then there are scientists too. And then there's the army too who does not answer to the lower level government but answers to the higher level government so with tiffany morrison's work i could see that there's power written in the rules and that's the structural component then there's power in the way it's exercised and that's with regard to the authority that you have to implement those rules or you can also choose to not implement those rules and that is a form of power right or you can choose to subvert those rules and then there's another kind of power which i really like is framing power, which is similar to issue framing, I think, but this kind of power is something that I saw with politicians who are, are not who are not a part of any of the decision centers, but they seem to have so much of power with regard to, you know, getting the fishers to not follow the regulations at all, just simply because they can come in and say that uh, these regulations are harming the fishers and uh, no government agency is going to do anything to my people because the politicians depend on the fishers for the vote. So by saying that, they were holding so much of power that led to the fishers, the fisheries officers not being able to implement those regulations. So I think I was able to uh, use that polycentric scholarship along with the power dynamics that Tiffany Morrison's uh, paper does, bring those together and then decide where I want to zoom in, at what kind of level that I want to zoom in. So in that way, I think bringing in the polycentricity lens for me in this context has been useful. And Pranita, then to follow up, what would you say is what, like your main conclusions from that paper that you were able to come, come to with those concepts? So my main conclusions, uh, so I'm, I'm a little wary of polycentricity uh, because in places where I present this, everyone wants to equalize power dynamics. They want to equalize power asymmetries. And I keep hearing people asking this question. So how do you re-engineer systems to equalize power asymmetries? And I find that very frightening because it's again trying to find a technical fix to a social problem, right? And it reminds me of social engineering. and 
the number of things that can go wrong with it uh, at its extreme it can lead to further minoritization and subjugation and oppression of already minority groups like what is happening in uganda and tanzania where the army has stepped in and it's completely eliminating fishers and then the government can argue that look we've equalized power dynamics because the fishers are no longer in the system at all and this happens this is happening even in india where there's a lot of social engineering going on so i think the major conclusion here was no matter so polycentricity has all of these promised and theorized benefits right improved adaptive capacity better institutional fit but with regard to but i think there is this inherent assumption in polycentricity that needs to be made clear at the outset is that it works well when there are functional and strong democratic institutions but you take that away it does not matter what kind of model governance model you would have because if there is resource scarcity if there is rent seeking if there is corruption if there's no accountability in the system if people are not empowered you're going to see the same problems repeat themselves no matter what kind of governance model you would end up implementing because polycentricity doesn't tell us how to improve transparency it doesn't tell us how to improve accountability it doesn't tell us how to foster empowerment right and at least i think with my research the goal is about empowerment how do you empower people uh, and i don't i think more work needs to be done with polycentricity where we don't overstate its benefits only from a certain kind of context and sometimes i think like it's you know become this another word that we've added into a black box of jargons but then how meaningful is it to practitioners and poly, policy makers because our practitioners and policy makers do they know that you know what they are doing is polycentric is there intentionality with regard to all the things that we are observing as analysts that was awesome pranita there's like 10 different things i want to respond to i'm only going to pick two cuz i know we want to go to tom um i mean i i totally agree with this last bit i mean i've struggled with um polycentricity for a while feeling like it was just kind of the new panacea sometimes i feel like we have these cycles of panaceas where you have the old one maybe it's itqs or whatever we want to call it and we replace it with a new one and the discourse just ends up being about this kind of uh very articulate academies about how great this thing should be if only we could implement it and there's it's not just polycentricity right it's co-management it's adaptive co-management it's adaptive blah 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 you can go on and on and on and that's i really liked uh, rebecca grubby's work I think it was like a 2017 paper that I think you're mentioning that kind of says okay what do we actually mean by this like how would we use it scientifically I thought was great. I mean I've struggled with um the other one other issue you mentioned Pranita which is okay I can tell you what it should look like after a process is done I I am not an expert in guiding you through that process to get to that point. I've gone into several communities in the Dominican Republic that that did not align with Linostrom's design principles and it was humbling because I was like I know that you need these things. I've been trained to know that these are important. How we get there, what the process is that actually implements those things, how do you actually go from A to B? There's not a process oriented theory that tells us how to do that. And I think that the process of uh normative cultural change because I don't think you can avoid that as being a piece of this is something that social scientists still really struggle with. I mean for me sometimes I just throw up my hands I don't know whether we're going to come up with a theory of cultural change that's just it's so self-reinforcing one direction or the other um but I definitely have those are two pieces that you're talking about that like strongly resonate with me and my own struggles with some of these concepts Yeah and especially with polycentricity I think you're totally right I do fear that you know this is the next big panacea that everyone is waiting for and this is something that I also saw in Lake Victoria's fisheries because co-management again there was imported from somewhere else and it was a bunch of scientists actually who thought that co-management is this great idea and so we're going to destroy all the community-based traditional institutions that exist and impose these co-management structures and that has failed spectacularly it's uh, been failing for the past i don't know 30 years now it started in the 1990s and now when you know we're coming with this polycentricity lens like what does that mean for this area like how much of social engineering is going to happen in these places and it always seems to be exported from you know the north american or you know the global north context to these other places and i think that is the part that is a little frightening and 
while I was there, I met some other scientists who are, you know, starting to talk about these other models. Like maybe we want to have uh, an aquarium model, like pick up the fish from Lake Victoria and send it to the US so that they will conserve it for us. And we're like, wait, you know, why don't we just go talk to the people over there? Like, why are all these scientists coming in and, you know, saying that this is what needs to be done and this is what needs to be done. But this is what some of the fishers told me, like even the government did this and the government is going to do that, right? These are, we've seen this kind of things happen because of so much interference from other nations. Mm. I mean, the final reflection I have there is just how slippery and sneaky kind of the panacea technical fix trap is. Even when your whole paradigm is guiding you away from it, you can still kind of fall into it. Right. Even when we're saying, look, the new fix is polycentricity. It's not we're trying not to be technical here. You can still fall into this kind of, as you're calling it, a social engineering perspective. And I imagine that relates to, you know, what academics like to call positionality, like who is actually saying these things to whom and what are the relationships like there? Yeah, so I, I think that's a really important point. And especially with my work, I think it's it's taking a more critical stance of polycentricity. And uh, I didn't realize that until someone pointed it out to me recently at a recent conference. But uh, I think there's a need for more case studies, especially from contexts that don't have these strong functional democratic institutions. And these can come even from the global north, right? Like I know Jennifer Biddle and Karen Baylor did this fantastic work on you know, process tracing of polycentric water systems of Flint, Michigan and uh, New York. And uh, we need those kind of things. And this is one reason why I'm really eager to go back to West Virginia, where there's this hegemony of the chemical and fracking companies uh, who hold so much of sway over the identity of the people. There's historical legacy of coal mining and contamination. And given all of that, there are these citizen groups that are emerging to advocate for water justice and better water protections. There are chemical spills and disasters that happen frequently in West Virginia. There is a polycentric structure in there, right? Because all systems are polycentric, but then what does it take to make it functional in these sort of contexts? I think that is the kind of work that I am more interested in. So that's to avoid that, you know, the natural uh, fall into the panacea uh, question. Hmm. Yeah, I'll jump in here too, because I've been thinking about that a lot with the collaboration work that I've done over the years. And it's interesting in the probably 1990s starting, there was people starting to write about collaborative governance at the community level. And the argument really was like this, um, the environmentalists, had gotten so far in protecting resources by using the courts. This is the US system. Uh, and so there was kind of a stalemate. There was, they were able to stop more degradation, but they weren't ever able to make improvements on what had already been degraded because it was just a big stalemate. And the local communities were being hurt as well because now maybe they lost the timber jobs and things. So this in the 90s, it was pretty prevalent that the current system was at a stalemate and that um, collaboration was a different way to approach it. And because the current system was failing, collaboration must be good. And so this is a really a non sequitur, but a lot of people were writing, they would say, we should do collaboration because the current way is broken without sort of saying, well, maybe collaboration won't work in this case, or what is it about collaboration? So I was in that field in the time when that was beginning to sort of be picked apart a little bit. And I was uh, eager to be part of that as well, uh, not being a real booster for collaboration, like collaboration isn't a panacea, but trying to understand what can collaboration do in what context and what do we need to pay attention to if we want this to work? So that idea I think resonates with this polycentric maybe panacea that we're hearing about now. Well, it should just be polycentric and well, maybe it should, but maybe it shouldn't, right? It's not always gonna be the best answer. And I think the field of polycentricity studies in the last um, seven or eight years has kind of at least as I've become aware of it, taken a really a healthy turn towards critically, as Pranitha, as you were saying, critically looking at, um, it's not enough to say that polycentric systems are the solution. It's, it's important to say, well, here's some aspects of polycentricity that can lead to these certain outcomes. And when I was working on the book chapters um, from the 2019 book about governing complexity, that was my focus of those chapters is saying, well, it's not going to be that there's a best answer. Um, it's going to be, if you're in this context, polycentricity is more likely than not to lead to these things. And are these things things that we want? 
And some of these things are directly opposing each other. My favorite example is um, efficiency versus adaptability. If you're gonna be adaptable, you're gonna have some slack resources and you're gonna be have tried some things that ended up not working, but that's how you figure out what does work. Those things are the exact opposite of being efficient, which is following a course um, and squeezing out every last bit uh, from your resources toward that one end. And the, the organizations that are super efficient have trouble being adaptive because they've deployed all the resources as efficiently as possible. So I do think it's important to think hard about what ends are we trying to achieve? And if we think polycentricity will get us there, do we care more about protecting the stream? Do we care more about equal access for the local people? Do we care more about the process itself being um, clear and transparent so the local people will now trust democracy or trust the ability to work as a community together? Um, there's, is it a learning organization, right? Can they learn in the future so that they can be resilient in the face of change? There's you know, half a dozen at least um, really important outcome criteria uh, that we might care about, and you're not going to maximize all of them. So let's be clear up front about what of the criteria you have a better chance at hitting based on these kinds of things that you're doing. And this really comes from the IAD framework that I think a lot of us are familiar with, where there was this box on the right that said evaluative criteria, and a few of them were mentioned were efficiency because Lynn was strongly rooted in the sort of economic ideas. So efficiency was there and transaction costs. But then we get into fairness. What the heck does that mean? Does that mean everybody gets the same amount? Does that everybody mean everybody gets the same opportunity to have their voice heard, even if they don't get the decision they want? Does that mean everybody gets proportional to what they need? And then who decides what you need? I think I need this, but you think I don't need it. So there's lots of different criteria we can think about. And um, it's important to me to help figure out how can we associate certain factors or contexts more likely to occur with certain outcomes and then have real discussions about, well, what, what outcomes do you value? And there I could see going to communities and saying, hey, you've said you wanted help with this problem. Um, first of all, I might not be able to help you, but I can share with you what we've seen in other places that you may not have seen. And these are factors that are often associated with these kinds of results. And these may be good and they may be bad results. What is it that you think you want? And then even in that community, there's gonna be disagreements about what they want. So whatever best case scenario you can imagine, it's gonna be really messy. But I think if we can be clear eyed about, um, there's no one thing that's gonna reach all the goals and we don't even agree on the goals. Now we have a basis for talking through what we think we want. I just want to ask a quick follow-up question, both of you, Tom and Pranita. The fact that you know, I, I find it really interesting that how you're constantly uh, trying not to, uh, you know, make polycentricity or even collaboration as a panacea, and you're making that conscious effort, you know, to not let that happen. And and at the same time, you're also thinking about you, you're using uh, this lens and also thinking about it very critically. So I'm wondering if if there are if you need to use other lenses to to view this concept of polycentricity or even collaboration critically. Do you do you think like you know you borrow lenses from other disciplines or other areas? Yeah, I'll, I'll go first because I was just thinking about the collaboration um, and the polycentricity, and I think one benefit of the polycentric lens is that it brings lots of different people together. And so I've been doing collaboration as my primary base for many years. And then I had the opportunity to step back and say, well, is collaboration fit in under the umbrella of um, polycentricity? And I think that it does because polycentricity talks a lot about interactions and interactions can be conflict or competition or cooperation. And I'm like, oh, cooperation, that's what collaboration is aiming to do. So by taking my sort of um, work of collaboration into the realm of polycentricity, uh, I've been exposed to lots of different ideas uh, on sort of parallel tracks that I wouldn't have encountered if I was just doing word searches on collaborative governance in Google Scholar. Uh, so I think a benefit of something that's broad like polycentricity is that it brings in uh, lots of different uh, smaller, I guess, frameworks together 
and people can interact and get spark new ideas. I've been in uh, a, a number of really fantastic webinars and conferences just during the pandemic year that have centered on the term polycentric governance. And I've heard from people that I've never didn't know they were existing and doing research. So that's brought me new ideas. So for all of the problems of having everyone all of a sudden do polycentricity as the big thing, uh, for all the challenges and, and, and problems with that, uh, one benefit certainly is that you get people bring, bringing in new ideas and new scholars and generating new questions. And I think that's been pretty fantastic. But yeah, I would say that there's never going to be one framework that includes everything. I think that it's important to have frameworks that are very modular and you can plug in here and have some interactions and ties and connections and be exposed to new ideas. And then you can go back and do this other thing. And if they're somehow tied together, that's great, but it would only be in a sort of loose connectivity rather than sort of one mothership, like this is the framework that will answer all of your questions. I think having the other lenses there is going to be really important. I, I agree with Tom and with polycentricity, I've been able to use different lenses or frameworks. Like I've used the government impacts framework from Tom's work. I've used the IAD framework. And I think that's the cool part that it's accommodative of all these frameworks. But then what becomes difficult is that it's accommodative of everything. Uh, and that becomes a challenge. Like I'm especially interested in concepts of equity and accountability and capabilities and power dynamics. And all of those things are implicitly present, but the challenge as an analyst is to make them explicit, right? To draw them out. Uh, so I think that has been difficult for me. How do you make the implicit explicit enough to be able to analyze it? And that happened, especially with the paper that I shared with you all with the Lake Victoria fisheries of putting together power dynamics and uh, the polycentricity framework. And uh, but I think it's it's nice to have these, you know, different frameworks that speak the same language, sort of with the ID and the SES and the polycentricity stuff. And that has worked well for me. Uh, but I think sometimes I have this trouble when I submit to journals, they keep asking for analytically innovative frameworks. And I'm like, but look, this framework works really well. Why do I need to come up with a new framework? So I think that has been, uh, and I don't want to do analytically innovative framework stuff because the findings that I have with frameworks that already exist are pretty good. They work really well. Uh, so I think that part has been quite difficult and challenging. We don't need new frameworks. This is... <laughs> One of the blog posts I've actually written for this was just like, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't need new frameworks. Like we've got a bunch, you can pick like 15. A lot of them do the similar things. Sorry, I'm not supposed to just opine here, I guess, but like, good, goodness gracious. <laughs> Sorry, we need editors and journals to listen to that, I think. Yeah. I agree. I mean, I mean it has been such a learning experience just like in this conversation was so exciting and so enlightening. I'm, I'm wondering like, you know, um, and we have to be mindful of the time over here. Um, so just to wrap up, I, I want to ask the, the question that where do you see your scholarship uh, going? Like, you know, uh, what is the vision or like, you know, the, the future that you're envisioning for your scholarship? I, I think I'm continuing to think a lot about polycentricity. And this again goes back to things I already mentioned, you know, the places from where we need more case studies, like we don't have any case studies from India on polycentricity scholarship. And that's another context that I'm eager to explore. Uh, I'm eager to go back to West Virginia again. Uh, but I think there needs to be a much better integration of maybe ideas of climate justice with the polycentricity scholarship more equity, accountability, capabilities, and empowerment. And I'm really interested in the idea of empowerment, uh, building self-efficacy and collective efficacies of people uh, to undertake long-term transformative change, right? And maybe you don't need a polycentricity lens to do that, but if this particular lens has all of these theorized benefits, then you know why not make a leap to even climate justice or environmental justice? Uh, and the reason for that is in my classes, we have fantastic undergraduates who keep asking about the relevance of these concepts that we are studying for managing large scale socioecological systems. And they're really interested. They are the ones who keep pushing for you know, equity and justice and inclusivity. So I'm constantly thinking about, so how do I teach this concept of polycentricity to undergraduates? I 
absolutely, I don't know how to teach it, but how can I also collaborate with undergraduates who have all of these fantastic ideas to enhance the consideration of these concepts of justice into the polycentricity scholarship, which does not have that at all. Like it talks about improving adaptive capacity, but how about improving adaptive capacity in a just manner, in an equitable manner? And this goes back to the questions that Tom was talking about, right? Like how do you define then what is equity? So we need more of that, I think. And uh, hopefully uh, I would be able to continue working on these concepts in the future, depends on grants, I guess. But uh, I think that's where I'm, I'm seeing at least my scholarship moving forward. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about the future and uh, where we're going because there's been a lot of explosive growth in polycentricity in the last six or seven years. I hope that as a field, we can continue to provide theory that's not just interesting to work on as academics, but also is useful for practitioners. Um, the way I think about science and scientific inquiry is we're trying to understand patterns on how the world works, but then we have to go from these general patterns and theories down to specific contexts for people to really be able to use it um, in a helpful way. In my current work on the science policy interface, I've found it really interesting that members of these collaborative groups uh, tell me that they really value theory-driven science as can be found in scientific journals. They see that as peer-reviewed and rigorous and valid, and they, they think that's a great source of knowledge but also um, may not be applicable to their local context, right? So this is the challenge of the sort of theory versus applied scale of knowledge building. Um, on one hand, you know, I don't think it's very helpful to say that every context is unique. If that's true, then we really can't bring science to bear on it very much because it's all a special case and general theories don't work on special cases very well. So I don't want to go down that road, but also I don't expect we're going to develop anything that looks like a grand theory of everything that's going to apply in all the places. So along this continuum of theory and applied, um, I really value the work that many folks are doing, um, including my own work in the space of um, middle range theory, which is looking for patterns and regularities to explain how the world works, um, but in different types of cases, different types of contexts. You can think of this as like classes, like classifying lots of unique places. Well, what do they have in common? For example, when I do collaboration, maybe understanding how collaboration works um, when the government is in charge of running the collaboration looks pretty different than when citizens kind of bubble up the collaboration naturally. And we can look at comparisons, which some of the work I've done is saying government driven versus citizen driven. These are some common features that they have in common with each other. It's not a grand theory of all collaboration, but it's collaboration in types of cases looks different than in other types of cases. This I think might help us get to better explanations of how the world works and science that is both theoretical and that academicians can, can work hard on developing theories, but also have our ambitions be more realistic than one thing is gonna explain it all. Polycentricity is it gonna explain it all. Um, different types of cases where hopefully practitioners can actually find it to be useful for their decisions and also importantly defensible. Um, I've interviewed people in the Puget Sound who say that they value this rigorous science from journals, but when they use that to justify a request for funding, the political folks in charge of funding say, who don't wanna give them the funding say, yeah, that was a study done somewhere else. Show us something that was done locally. How do you know this project will work on this stream? And they, they're frustrated because they trust and value the science from journals, but then the local resistance means that if it's not local enough, it's not gonna fly. So it's a really interesting space to be stuck in, but wanting to take the best of the generalizable theory and also some idea about context without saying everything is so unique that we just have to throw out all the science. Wow, that was, that was great, Tom and Pranita. Thank you so much for sparing time to, to talk to us and, uh, and thanks for sharing all your insights and your work. I learned a great deal and, uh, and I think I'll be reflecting on this conversation for a very long time. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you thank both. You. Appreciate the chance to visit again. It's great to see you all. And someday we'll all be back in the same room together. That will be fantastic. <laughs> yes, thanks for letting me sit in on your lab meeting re like reunion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more updates at InCommonPod. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. Take care and be safe.